and welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky, that's me. Hello! Episode 15! 15, wow, that, that's almost 100. <laughs> Where did I get that from? That, that's from a movie or a video where a small number gets brought up. Wow, that's, that's almost 100. <laughs> I've been saying it for years, and I don't remember where I got that from. But welcome. Welcome to episode 15 of the CGK Podcast. Glad you are here. Glad you are listening. Today we are going to do story time with Tyler. How's that sound? You want, you want me to tell you a story? You come right up here. Come next to the fire. I'll give you some snacks, some hot chocolate, and we'll do story time with Tyler. How's that sound? Maybe I need a better name for it. Is there a better name? I don't know. You can think of one. We're going to do some story time. I see online that there is this trend. You've probably seen it too. Uh, especially in the past, I don't know, eight years, maybe we'll say. Past decade at least. There's been an increasing number of former Christians, allegedly, who have deconstruction stories to tell. You heard something like that? How I deconstructed my faith. Uh, it's really easy to find online resources about people who have deconstructed, and that means they have uh, apostatized, but they have left the faith. They were Christians, they were raised Christians, they were in... It's not even just Christians, religious. People are doing this in all kinds of religions. So they were raised in a certain religious tradition, and they were all. that's all they knew, it was all around them, and then they started deconstructing that was removing the foundation that they had. It cracked, and they embraced their real self, or embraced whatever whatever they then reconstructed to. Usually these deconstruction narratives don't have a very good or compelling reconstruction, but they end up being just like everybody in the majority culture. So... And there's a lesson there that if you're going to deconstruct or change from something, it better be towards something better. Because if not, there's always a default waiting for you. And the default is whatever majority culture is. Whatever the majority influence is will be what you reconstruct into if you're not purposely constructing into something or moving towards something. So when I see these types of stories, obviously I'm there's some grieving there of people who once professed the faith who then apostatize like that and then they are they're carbon copies of woke leftist culture i feel like when i hear that term deconstruction like i i know a little bit about it though because i've had my own deconstruction in a way i never deconstructed out of christianity i was baptized at at 12 years old and i never no, I wasn't 12 years old. 12 years old, I was 13 years old. But I never left the Christian faith. I never deconstructed out. But I did experience a type of deconstruction where I had a certain foundation before me and brick by brick, layer by layer, that foundation came apart. Whereas it was all that I knew and all my comfort was there, my knowledge was there, friends and family were there, and it fell apart and I was left with anxiety and an unknown about where I was going. There was some guilt about leaving behind what I what I was before. And these are all things that you see in deconstruction narratives. So I know a little bit about deconstruction, and there is a reason that I'm going to be sharing the story that I'm sharing. 
I'm telling the story of why I left the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, how, how it happened. I'm going to give you a history lesson into my life. And we're zooming in on a roughly four-year period, which was the time I was in Bible college. Now, let's start at the first stage. And our, this story is going to compose of four stages. And the first stage you might call identity by upbringing. Pretty much everybody knows this. You take on the identity that is mostly passed on to you, the beliefs that your parents give you or your strongest mentors give you, especially if you're in a church, you by default become what your church is. So I was, I was raised going to the Pentecostal church, then the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, Southern Ontario. Those are my, um, my formative theological learnings were in the Pentecostal church. It was all I knew and I was very faithful in going to church. My parents took me and even though eventually my parents would divorce and the home got to be pretty broken and all of that, I was still in the church, very involved. They took me in. I volunteered with the kids ministry. I was taken to kids camps and I was a counselor every summer, sometimes multiple camps in a summer. I was a valued helper in children's ministry. I was a big part of VBS, especially for a couple years there during high school. I took on a lot of responsibility there. I was one of the stars, you could say, of the youth group. I was faithfully there. I was helping out. I was a relatively big presence there. And I played on the quote-unquote worship team. I've really revolted against that, that title, that terminology. But the worship team is the, the people who play music. And in a lot of Christian traditions, worship is just a synonym for, the, for music. And I think that's not a very comprehensive view of worship. But so I was on this. I was, I was, playing, I was playing keyboard or uh, I, I would play guitar or whatever they needed. So I, I was doing a lot of stuff. And even though I had my ups and downs when it came to my faith, and I made a lot of mistakes through my high school years, and I didn't know that I was a bit short on mentors at the time, I was strong on having people, pastors of the Pentecostal Church, care for me. They really did care for my, my, um, my mind, in terms of making sure that I had an outlet, someone to talk to, they took me in, they, like all these types of things. They cared for me in an emotional way and on, on a human level, but I was pretty short on intellectual mentors, and I didn't quite know that at the time. But anyway, I went to, I was a big part of the Pentecostal Church, I, I ate it all up. And I went to that denomination's flagship school then after high school, Master's College and Seminary, Peterborough, Ontario. This is, I went there not originally to be in ministry, actually. I was only going to go for one year. I was just going to go for one year, and then the plan after that was Ryerson University Sports Broadcasting. I mean, can't you see that? Like, I love, I love sports and I love talking. Like, what better thing than sports broadcasting? However, I applied to Ryerson too late. All the spots were full. They told me I had to apply next year. And so my youth pastor suggested, I, I, there was no way I was going to stay for a year. And he just suggested going to Bible college for a year. And so I did that. I signed up just to go for one year, and that turned into four. So I didn't leave. I ended up sensing a call 
uh, or my version of that, I suppose, while I was there and ended up deciding to stay for four years. Now, I am a logical and structural thinker. I have always been that way, but I have not, I've not always been that way with my faith. Especially growing up in a charismatic setting, there's a heavy emphasis on experiences. And this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to anybody who listens and wasn't in that type of environment, but it wasn't a good thing to be heady, you know, to have, to have a lot of knowledge head knowledge they would they would call it it was more important to have heart knowledge and how did you get this heart knowledge you got it from having experiences with with the holy spirit allegedly and you would be you would see signs of it through emotions in during the worship which is the music you would throw your hands up maybe you'll fall down um maybe you'll do, make other motions with your body you, you'll break down crying you'll uh, but eventually speaking in tongues was the big thing. If you were to start speaking in tongues, that was the premier evidence that you were experiencing gifts of the Spirit. And so there was a huge emphasis on having these types of experiences, experiences with the Spirit. And and if you, it was to be expected that some people would get words of knowledge, you could get prophecies, you could get all sorts of, of different things put into your head by the Holy Spirit, by God, uh, outside of Scripture, if you were chasing, if you were trying to have these types of experiences, and even looking back at that time, I loved my pastors, and they cared for me in a lot of ways, and even to this day, I still love them, and I do not repudiate or renounce any way that they took care of me when I was a punk of a kid and a a teenager who didn't know his way all the time. They cared for me. And that is probably the biggest reason it took so long for me to let this foundation go. Honestly, it, it probably is. Because I felt a sense of duty, almost, to those men and women who looked after me when I was a bit of a, a, bit of a lonely teenager, I guess you could say, not really knowing my way. So that... The reason, the fact that they cared for me made it hard for me to let the foundation of the theology and doctrine go down the line. It's funny how those things, they're supposed to be connected, theology and life. They're supposed to be connected. So I got a whole lot of real, a lot of life care from them, but not a whole lot of doctrinal and theological care. These things are supposed to go together, and that is the most powerful thing. When you're good theology makes practical inroads into living a good life and living good to others. So anyway, I go to Bible college, I'm in my first year, and I'm actually getting some more intellectual exposure to the faith. This highly engaged me. I was not used to this. I was getting some more exposure even to some different thoughts, uh, different traditions somewhat. My I would have a roommate who was a Methodist. I didn't know who Methodists were. So I'm getting some more exposure, and this was highly this, this was engaging for me, but the material was not incredibly deep or challenging yet. And there's there's reasons for that. All these 18-year-olds coming into Bible college from these churches, like a lot of us didn't know very much at all. They had to start from a not very high step and basically train us all in the basics of the Christian faith. So it was not incredibly deep or challenging, but 
I was finally getting intellectual exposure in my first year. I'm 18 years old, going, going 19. At this time, everything in my faith was still a given. We're still in that first stage, and uh, part of this given is that we humans have autonomous free will. I'm not going to get too much into free will today, but if you know what that means, we have autonomous free will. Uh, men and women can perform the same roles at home or the church. There's no difference in the roles that men or women perform or play. Speaking in tongues was to be expected of believers. Churches were run by solo pastors and a board who got replaced every few years. And tradition was bad. If it had tradition on it, that, that's a bad thing. We're supposed to be about the Spirit giving us new experiences and and impressing these things upon of our upon our faith tradition was kind of that boring old stuck thing that the christians who didn't have the spirit were holding on to their tradition and that that was dead that was boring that was for old people that was going by the wayside tradition was bad uh, but christians and other streams of christianity were still christians but were not spirit empowered christians us Pentecostals were more equipped for ministry than them. And that is a phrase that was directly taught to me even in the school. That believers should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues because it equips you for ministry. And so those who did not have that were not as equipped for ministry. But they could still do good things. But it's not, it wouldn't be spirit-empowered like us Pentecostals. Now, there was one thing, though, early in school that was a precursor to my deconstruction. Even though I had eaten the whole charismatic bullet at this point, there was a professor who asked us pretty early in our first year. He was doing some research, trying to get some, uh, some results of first-year students, what they thought. Does every Christian, should they be expected to speak in tongues? That was, so that was a given already, but when I... At that point, then, I had read 1 Corinthians 12. So should every Christian be expected to speak in tongues? At that point, I had read 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31. Uh, it says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Okay, listen, verse 29. Are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. So these are questions that are um, obviously no. Not all are apostles. Not all are prophets. Not all are teachers. Not all speak in tongues. I had read that at that point, and I responded to that survey that no, I, I didn't actually believe every Christian could, but that the most spirit-empowered ones would, the, the charismatics, we would, but not every Christian could. So that was a bit of a precursor to deconstruction or reformation. Uh, maybe that's a better word. Now let's move to the second stage, and these other stages will hopefully be a little bit quicker, but we can call this, if the first stage was identity by upbringing, the second stage is identity challenged. The best thing that happened in the first two years of school, Bible college, was my view of the Bible became elevated. I had, a, 
my view of the Word of God became that it was the Word of God. It was the final say. There was not an authority above it. That came uh, partly from the teaching of the school. And by word, they do say that the, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it does not have error in it, even though I did have a Pentecostal pastor one time tell me about a verse I questioned him about, it might just be wrong. He was a pretty high-ranking, high very influential Pentecostal pastor, still is, and that rocked me a bit to hear, even if I didn't mention it at the time, but in Word, they, they say that the Bible is the Word of God, the inspired Word without error, and so my view of the Bible was, was elevating, and partly from the teaching of the school, except that the gifts of the Spirit and the experiences were placed essentially as equals to Scripture, or at least a necessary part of understanding Scripture. You want to understand the Word of God, you need to go to a prayer closet and get revelation from the Holy Spirit about how to interpret it. Uh, but then it was also coming from a couple friends in the school who were becoming reformed. And I didn't know what that was, only it sounded like tradition, and tradition was bad, so reformed bad. A couple of the people in that school, or a bit older than me, were already be, had already become reformed while they were there. And this was my first exposure to this reformed thing. They were listening to debates by Christian apologists, including these reformed and Calvinist Christians. Now, once again, I that was the first I've heard of what Calvinist was. I didn't know what, Ar what Arminianism was either. I was an Arminian by, it was given to me in my upbringing, but I didn't know these terms. I, we weren't, we didn't talk about that. Not in the church uh, or with my friends, my Pentecostal friends. We didn't talk this way. So I didn't know what reform was and I didn't know what a Calvinist was. But when I was told a bit about what being reformed is and what a Calvinist believes, I vehemently denied Calvinism. I was, so my programming came into effect when I heard it. I had been taught that God has given us a free will to accept him or not, and he is trying, he's, he has this offer of salvation out to every single person in the world, indiscriminate of anything, and, and this is through his prevenient grace, that is a, a term that I didn't learn till college, but he has put out this offer to every single person, and they have to accept it by their free will, because if God didn't give them free will, then we would just be robots, and God has just made us robots who, and that was their that was the image of it, and so that my programming kicked in to say, no, they are being robots, they're making us like robots, and that's bad, which that's a complete, um, that's not an accurate putting or rendering of Calvinist doctrine, but that's that's what I believed at the time. And so I vehemently denied it. And at that time, there were a whole lot... This, this meme was big, straight out of Compton. You remember the straight out of Compton memes? And the poster that came with it? So we had a poster outside our dorm room door. It was Calvinism, straight out of context. <laughs> so I rejected Calvinism. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. Nope. Bad. But due to my higher view of scripture... I began reading the Bible every day and thought that what I read was meant to be believed. And remember, I'm more of a logical, structural thinker. I don't want to read something and just look it over and not understand it or just move on. And I was at a time, this was in my second year, I'm sitting in my room, on my dorm, in my dorm room, in my bed, 
and I'm reading Romans 8 and Romans 9. And if you know, if you've ever read Romans 8 and Romans 9, these are hard passages for an Arminian, for someone who believes that we have autonomous free will to accept or reject God. It's, it says things like, um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ooh, I remember reading that out of Romans 8. Foreknew, predestined, he conformed them. God's doing this. He And then if he predestined and called them, he was justifying them. And then he, was, he would glorify them at the end of their lives. This is an unbroken chain of God's sovereign acts. Where's there me in this? I wasn't seeing it. And I got to Romans 9, and that is... If I was already struggling with Romans 8, Romans 9 was possibly even harder. <clears throat> and that's where uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about the sons of Rebekah and, and Isaac. In Romans 9.11, talking about them, though they were not yet born, that is the sons, they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, there's that word calls that he used back in chapter 8, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God, before Jacob and Esau were born, it was already determined that God was going to call Jacob and not call Esau. And then the apostle goes on, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wow. And then you go on down to verse 19. This is, I'm really having trouble reading this at this time. So it was down to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's a very relevant question. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of this, the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And the apostle will go on. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He is calling people out of these two nations, out of these two tribes, which is really everybody, Jew, Gentile, encompasses everybody. He is choosing people out of every group of people. His predestined ones, his elect. And I remember sitting there reading that as an Arminian, as a Pentecostal charismatic, and I read that, and I knew what it was saying. But I thought, I am sure there is a Pentecostal answer for this. I just don't know it yet. And I moved on 
and kept reading to Romans 10, and 11, and 12. I just moved on. I knew what it was saying. But I figured I just need to find the answer to it. Uh, like It was challenging me, but I didn't have the answer. I just needed to have the answer. I ended up getting my answer in a class on Pauline literature later on that year. But the answer was wholly unsatisfactory. It tried to reinterpret the passage as referring to electing corporate nations, not individuals. And the text does, doesn't allow for that. And so it was wholly unsatisfactory. But I remember thinking around that same time, it was, a, it was a few weeks later after I had said, I'm sure there's an answer. I'm like, what did I just do to the Word of God? Remember, my view of the Word of God was already increasing. And to have just done that, I knew that I wasn't faithfully handling the Word of God. So now my identity is being challenged. I wasn't getting a satisfactory answer. I knew that what I believed about that passage going into it was not in accordance with what the text was saying. And not long after that, I had another very, very vividly remember thinking, I am not a Calvinist, but the Bible would be a lot easier to explain if I was. I actually thought that while still being an Arminian charismatic Pentecostal. So my journey, my deconstruction or my reformation had already started at this point. I, I'm now in the journey. Those the conviction regarding those two experiences started the process. The Romans 8 and 9 one, and then the thought of, I'm not a Calvinist, but the Bible would be a lot easier to explain if I was. Like that, those two experiences rocked me. And I have friends who are becoming reformed, not just the older people when I first came, but even a couple of my close friends at the school were going through their own reformations, but were further ahead than I was. And so I was getting exposed to what they were saying and how they were challenging my beliefs. And they did it in respectful ways. So I'm getting all of this. And then I get exposed to the teaching ministries of two men in particular who were very important for me, R.C. Sproul and James White. There were others, of course, but those two were the big ones. And these are reformed-leaning guys. Uh, they both believe in the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. And so I'm listening to these guys, I'm listening to Ligonier, I'm listening to The Dividing Line, those are some of their podcasts, and I'm listening to a bunch of it, I'm reading the Bible, my friends are reforming, and I'm well on my way to having my identity challenged at this point. And this puts me into the third stage, which is identity shattered. It's my third year now, I'm growing intellectually, I was, but I was finding class after class, charismatic Pentecostal teaching to not be of the same depth or beauty of some of these reform guys. It, I liked what I was getting. I, I, wasn't, I was not revolting against it at this point. And, and so I took it joyfully and, and all of that. I wasn't turning my back on, on my Pentecostal brethren. But I did, sadly, come to believe that it just wasn't of the same depth, that it was missing something. It was on the surface. It wasn't going deep enough. And this was happening class after class. But I couldn't leave what I knew. Outwardly, I remained a happy Pentecostal, but the foundation was coming apart brick by brick. This continued for over a year. My entire third year, I'm having brick by brick fall down. I moved to Montreal. I commuted to school in Peterborough. Ontario. It was a five-hour drive to get to school. I would stay for a few days and then drive back. 
This gave me plenty of time to hear sermons and podcasts from different guys. I, I still listen to some Pentecostal guys, of course. Uh, Gordon Fee was one of my favorites. Uh, Leighton Flowers, who I soured on <laughs> at some point, but I was listening to him. And, of course, I'm still listening to R.C. Sproul. I'm listening to James White and William Lane Craig. The beginning of my fourth year, Bill Craig who is a Molinist. I'm not going to get into all of that, but it's some type of middle ground between Arminianism and Calvinism, between man's freedom and God's freedom. It tries to find a middle-ish path. He, he convinced me out of Arminianism, but it wasn't that hard even. At that point, when he explained Molinism, which was a first for me, it wasn't Calvinist, but it didn't have to be Arminian. See, that, that, that appealed to me. That was awesome. So it was very quick. I hear about Molinism, and I, I call myself a Molinist then. Um, it took me out of Arminianism, and that is a central doctrine for Pentecostals Charismatics. I became a Molinist. I was a Molinist for about two weeks. No joke. And this is because, well, for multiple reasons, but it wasn't really working out. I became convinced that it is a philosophy that is being attached to the scriptures, not a comprehensive biblical worldview coming out of the scriptures. So I'm softening all of this time to the idea of God's sovereignty. I want to work it out. God must be sovereign. But how does that work with my freedom? And I'm at a crossroads. I am nearing graduation. I had went through an internship at a church in Montreal. It's a Pentecostal church, of course. I, I loved the church. I'm nearing graduation, but admittedly, I was no longer, could no longer in good conscience agree with core Pentecostal doctrine. I didn't think we should chase experiences with the Spirit. I no longer practiced or believed in speaking in tongues. Actually, uh, in the summer, in between my third and fourth year, I was working just as an intern at a Pentecostal church. As their, I was like their youth pastor for a summer type thing. And they brought in, when the pastor was away, they brought in a, an evangelist who puts on uh, these what's called an altar call. And it's usually after he's done preaching, and there's a whole bunch of music, and he comes up and he tries to have people... Uh, get baptized in the spirit and if you're a charismatic or were one you know what I'm talking about but at some point people might get an experience with the spirit where the preacher will put his fingers on your forehead and you'll fall back and that's supposed to be the presence of the Holy Spirit and people are just gonna like lose power of their limbs and, and fall back and you needed catchers for this and I remember I was at this event I was running their uh, the computer, the slides, the, the equipment, the sound, all of that. And I was asked if I could catch people, but I, in good conscience, could not do that. I didn't believe in what I was seeing anymore. And I used the excuse that I had to stay at the sound machine, that I, that I couldn't catch people. And so this is what, what was going on. I no longer practiced or believed in these types of experiences. I no longer thought man had the final say in salvation. I thought theology and doctrine, the unvarnished word of God, should be preached exegetically, not the topical moralism I so often heard. I remember being at church once, and I timed it, and clearly my motives were not probably in a good place, but I remember one of the final times I went to the Pentecostal church, I looked at my watch, I recorded the time, 
and I was going to see how long will it take into the service before the Bible is opened and a verse read. It took 45 minutes. 45 minutes. And that hurt my heart. And so I saw the big issue, and these were my people. So my resolve was actually at that time, at, upon graduation, nearing it, I was going to stay in the Pentecostal assemblies and help reform it from within. You can probably tell how that turns out. I was going to reform it from within. I didn't want to leave. I was going to brace myself for the long haul, fight for it. We go into the fourth stage. So at this point, my identity is is shattered. The foundation of my theology was was torn apart. Fourth stage, though, identity embraced. Graduation is nearing. Jobs were needed to be had. My son was less than two months from being born. I'm nearing the end. I needed to work, secure a job. Uh, a lot of a lot of friends and, and fellow students who are graduating were starting to get interviews, were getting prepared for getting jobs out of school in the ministry. And I confided in my pastor at the Pentecostal Church in Montreal about my internal struggles, about what I was going through. I didn't want to be too open about that because that could compromise my job prospects. But I ended up opening up to him and confiding in him. And in that moment, sitting in his office was the first time I admitted I'm not a Pentecostal. And I was actually a Calvinist. It was the first time I ever said it out loud. And it wasn't until I said it that I actually even believed it in myself. I didn't know what I was. And I, I just, I confided, I asked for his, his opinion, his advice. And he told me that it wouldn't be worth spending a life fighting against the tide. Trying to go upstream against the river that I'm going to try to reform it from within. Working amongst people in, in, a, in a denomination, I didn't, couldn't in good conscience agree with the core doctrine and the direction of it. It's not worth spending a life fighting against the tide. I wasn't expecting that. But that conversation freed me from my inner guilt my wrestling, my anxiety. Because remember, deconstruction, I know it, it can it can leave you feeling kind of alone, and there's guilt associated with it. These are the only people I knew. Trying to think of going into another Christian branch, denomination, that scared the heck out of me. I also had offers for interviews from a couple churches. I, I even had a job offer outright. Upon graduation, I had a job if I wanted it in a church, as a, as a pastor, but upon graduation, I politely refused. Now, I gotta say, on a human level, this is a really bad time for all of this to be happening. <laughs> like, usually right when you graduate is not when you want to be switching your denomination and not knowing anybody, so that tanks all your job prospects, and, but, I, I had to trust the Lord in those times. I couldn't, in good conscience, fight against the tide. My, my pastor was right. It's a really bad time, though. A lot of guys are getting jobs right out of school. They're, they're 21, 22, 23. Baby face, can't grow facial hair yet. I couldn't either. Not at all ready for ministry, but that's, that's how it worked, and I could have joined right out of school. And I, but I didn't know. I didn't know people outside the Pentecostal church, and all the people who took care of me growing up, that was impressed upon me, but yeah, my pastor in Montreal was right. It wasn't worth fighting against the tide. I had a friend in Montreal who was actually a fellow student uh, who, who also became reformed 
through that school, came in as a Pentecostal, came out Reformed, and he was attending a Baptist church that was elder-led. That was a first for me. I didn't know what that was. Um, I attended the church with him, and I found any other job I could. I worked a couple jobs at a time and was doing anything I could to provide for my family. But I was being freed into a world of Christian thought I didn't know existed. All of a sudden, I'm reading Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, who's my homeboy now. I'm reading other Puritans, smart Baptist guys, Mark Dever, Charles Spurgeon, Kevin DeYoung, many, many more. I find the riches, the richness of historic Christianity, and I became zealous for it. Because the Pentecostal movement is really 100 years old, a bit over 100 years old. It's very modern, very recent. And I had to learn that Christian history is so much longer than that and deeper than that. And there's good reasons why the church believed what it did. The Reformed churches believed what they did. So I was opened up to this whole world. And I'm growing intellectually um, at an exponential rate. My knowledge is increasing a lot. And I'm, but I'm working other jobs, I'm raising my kids and all that, two of them. And after a few years of this growth, I joined the ministry at last at a Calvinist Baptist church here in Windsor. So that was a couple years ago now. So that's how I got to where I am in this, in this story. I'm still growing a lot, but now I'm in, an, I'm in an environment where smart Christianity is celebrated. I get this opportunity every week to teach a Sunday school class where I don't have to chase spiritual experiences in a closet in order to say something or have authority or or speak truthfully. Like I can talk about doctrine, I can talk about theology, I can talk about confessions, catechisms, tradition, all these things that really appeal to me and I think are are true. And it's celebrated, and that really suits me well. Now, I tell this story not because I want to burn bridges with all charismatics or attack them, even if they've burned bridges with me, and some have, and even if they, some of them have attacked me. That's happened, and I've, I'm no, I haven't been completely faultless in all of this either. Many of them were good to me. I'm still friends with people who are card-carrying Pentecostals, charismatics. But that group and tradition could not take me where I was going and where I thought the Bible was taking me. I left for theological, biblical, doctrinal reasons, not personal reasons. It was never personal. I do believe salvation can be had in Pentecostal charismatic circles. It can. I, I was saved in their circles. It can happen, absolutely. But, I am concerned for them. They are ripe for apostasy, and many already have. I remember, this is one of the downsides of social media, um, I saw one of the guys who graduated from my school who's in the ministry, and he's having a Facebook conversation with somebody, and something was shared, and a man challenged what a girl said, the truthfulness of something that she said, and this youth pastor said that she was experiencing her truth and that he shouldn't challenge it. My heart sank when I saw that. This is a pastor. Somebody... Anyway. They are ripe for apostasy. 
Many already have. They're not, many of people in these circles are not prepared to intellectually handle the cultural challenges that are coming. And that's one of the reasons I'm telling this story. I'm not above these pe the people I grew up with, the school I went to, the pastors who took care of me, who loved me. I'm not above them. I'm not above any of them. I'm just trying to articulate that there are concerns here that need to be taken seriously. There are biblical issues at stake, and ultimately the reason I'm doing this is, and I'm telling the story, is because we're going to need to work together. And I don't mean just me personally with a few of them. This isn't personal to anybody. I mean that Christians are going to need a broader but faithful Christian unity with where culture is going. We need to be able to stand closer together in the face of this ever-deepening antagonistic culture. The secularists, the leftists, the, the woke, the, the so-called non-religious, they're very religious in trying to eliminate the influence of religion. At least, especially Christianity. And so, into this hostility, we are going to need faithful Christians to be able to band together and work together despite some doctrinal differences. And I don't know that I could have said something like this a few years ago. I don't think I was ready yet. But also, things have changed. Culture is ever increasingly becoming hostile to us. And we are trying to Christianize this nation, no doubt. And it will happen. I've said that multiple times. The Lord will have return to a mostly Christianized earth, a thoroughly Christianized earth. But we're going to need some unity. We are. There's going to be some things, denominational distinctions, that we're going to have to look behind and band together. Charismatics, Pentecostals, those I grew up with, those I went to school with, I don't disdain you. I don't look down on you. I don't. I learned a lot from you. We're going to need to work together. We will. Calvinists and Arminians, faithful Arminians and faithful Calvinists, are going to need to work together. The question is going to be, what are we going to unite around? And what are we going to have to put into the category of, we're not going to fight about this, even if we have firm conviction about it? And that is something I'm going to start talking about in the next few weeks, is this idea of Christian unity. What is real Christian unity? And so, I'm going to say already now, we're going to need to work together. Think of ways to be more unified with fellow believers. That's the challenge. Okay, so I'm going to get into that over the next couple of weeks. I hope this story is helpful in some ways. Thank you for listening, by the way. I really appreciate everyone who listens, everyone who has donated uh, to the podcast, to the work going on here. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Share it with people, if you will. Go in the nations. God bless you. Bye-bye. Oh,